What's up, everybody? This is Mr. Adam X. You're listening to The Pursuit on the Out of Bounds Network. So I geeked out over my guest this week. His name is Austin Horse. If you don't know who he is, look him up on Google. Austin Horse. And listen to this episode because you're going to learn so much about this dude. He is the reason I ever bought a fixed gear, the reason I ever wanted to ride a fixed gear. He was sponsored by Red Bull, Oakley, All City. He basically turned currying into a career with sponsors by riding a bike. Uh, he Everest, he he Everested the Williamsburg Bridge, which if you don't know what that is, you just do the vertical gain of Everest, and he did it on a bike on Williamsburg Bridge. We talked about that. Uh, the guy, he's just insane. But really, he's the. I reached out, I geeked out, I praised him a bunch because he's an amazing athlete who doesn't give himself enough credit. He still rides his bike all the time. He cares about our environment. We talk about all that, about how... I mean, listen, it's just an amazing episode. Austin's an amazing dude. I'm I'm geeking out because I never thought I'd get to have a one-on-one conversation with this dude. So... Here it is, episode 21 with Austin Horse. Okay. Austin, one of my cycling heroes. Tell everyone who you are, what you do. Oh, wow. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, my name is Austin Horse. Since 2005, I've been in New York City as a bike messenger. Um, and I've really seen a lot of the the way that things have changed over those years. It's 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 pretty remarkable to have been there at that moment and to be where I am at, you know, the moment that I am now. Um, the bike world has changed a lot. I actually started, I guess, I guess I became really involved and enamored with bikes as a teenager. It was my first job as soon as I could legally be employed was at at a bike shop. And it's just been, it's been hard to leave bikes ever since. (laughs) Where, where are you from originally? I grew up in Houston. Okay, and so, what brought you to New York City? My grandparents are from my, my my family's from New York. My grandparents were in upstate New York, um, and I moved to I moved in with them in 2004 to take care of them. Okay, uh, go and ahead. And they were doing good, so I came to the city. That's amazing. I mean, that's best case in all angles. So 2005, you moved here. Were you were you a fixie guy? Because you're like the fixie guy for people who don't know, and maybe you don't think of it that way, but like I do. Well, thank you. So, in <laughs> I, I remember in I mean I'm not the originator. You know, I'm not like. Well, yeah, I know that, but like there you are, so many OGs that are that have that go deep, deep, deep. You um, brought it into the limelight, whether you wanted to do that or not. Like you you paved a giant way for like this fixed gear movement in like the, I don't know, late early two thousands, I don't know, 2010 to 2015 ish. Yeah. In New York, the, the moment was really like the last half of the, of the two thousands. It was, it was really kind of the, at its, at its, at its most zeitgeisty. Um, for me in, it was, a I think in, in 2000, my friend Alex Perdue had a, how to fix you. It was probably a Bianchi Pista. And that was the first time I rode a, a fixed gear. Did you fall in love immediately? Or like, why am I on this stupid bike? It was more like, you know, so back then it was really tough to get one, right? It was like to, to go and buy one, you had to be very intentional about it. You couldn't just go into a bike shop. Uh, Bianchi was the first one to really distribute them and, and get any sort of distribution before that it would just be like something used that you bought from a velodrome or from japan or something like that it was really impossible to get a fixed gear before bianchi started to to uh make theirs and you know a lot of credit goes to sky Yeager there over at bianchi with that was it a like were you part of these conversations with them or is this before your time you before were like, me that was just before like me. That was what's yeah. available because that's when the flip flop hub started coming out. And so it was like, hey, you can get this cool single speed, but also like you can run brakes and like you can run it fixed or not. Well, you can always do that. I mean, the thing about the flip flop hub is that's just that's just um, 
cost saving. So the it's the threading for a freewheel or a cog is the same, right? And so all that a fixed free hub is a flip-flop hub is is a hub that they just didn't do another machining pass on and do the reverse threading for the lock ring. I guess I never, I mean, you're right. Yes. <laughs> I guess I just never you thought. You can actually, there's no reason you can't put a single freewheel on a fixed hub. Why do people threading. fix gear? What? Why do people fix gear? Like, is it just a status? Like when you were there and you like rolled into this scene, that was like clearly a scene. And like from what I read in like the little research, it sounds like Fast and Furious, but on like messenger bikes and like fixed gears. But like they have like these underground, like non-sanctioned races. And you can and you fill me in on this because this is like what I picked up from my research. But like I'm picturing like Vin Diesel, like hipster Vin Diesel there, like throwing a flag. But they give you a point on a map, basically, and the first one get there gets there, correct? Or is that not am I making all that up? It's a little more involved. Um, and you know, these these are things that come and go. They they you know, they, they ebb and flow, they wax and wane. Um, and I was fortunate to be around, I think some of the most creativity in, in sort of this alley cat scene or, or whatever, where organizers, you know, the internet has ruined many things, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, alley cats had their genesis in a, in a, in a pre-social media time. So for a lot of us, this would be like, okay, I've seen people sort of like in the street and nod to them when I go by them. Maybe I'm like waiting in a messenger center and like I'll get a chance to talk to them at that point. Um, and, and then this is an event where it's like, hey, it's just something to unite us. And so it was, you know, if, if you're passionate about the job, then yeah, you're probably going to come in on the weekend and do something that is basically fake work. If it's just a job to you and you don't give a fuck, then you're you know it wasn't for you and there were you know there were all kinds of people um but what was really cool about alley cats and still can be and still is uh at times is that there's no set format it's totally up to the creativity of the organizer um and so there's just been some really innovative formats um and i think i think um i gotta close some it's okay. Some stuff. <laughs> We're human. Um, oh man, <laughs> I better exit Slack before it starts kicking off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I'm in a different workspace. That'll probably save me from that. Um, so yeah, so you know, there was this one really talented individual out of Boston, Jacob. And a lot of a lot of people know Jacob and miss Jacob. He, we lost him, uh, I guess, eight years ago, seven years ago. I'm sorry it's, to hear that. It's already a lifetime ago. Um, but he, you know, he was brilliant when it came to just coming up with with cool, neat stuff to do. And one of his, um, there was this really cool. There was this one alley cat that I won in Boston. You know, which is a hard city to race in because it's a complicated city to get around in when you say alley cat this is just like what you call the races yeah so that has its own history too so the alley cats were a were a bunch of it was like it's basically like a messenger cycling club kind of thing out of toronto in the 90s and that's where the that's where the name came from for the event was because they had a weekly ride that just through the use of language became known as like an alley cat, even though they were, the group's name is the alley cats. Okay. So it was an alley cat to do this ride that competitive people being competitive turned into kind of a race. And so the original alley cats actually were more, more like a standard race where, you know, there'd almost be, you would get your checkpoints and a map and maybe even, you would have to do the checkpoints in order, but it very quickly, you know, evolved into something that people decided to utilize whatever format suited them. They found to be the most fun. And for most messenger races, I'd say the hallmark of an Alicat is that the checkpoints do not have a set route to go to them. 
So it's up to you as the as the participant to determine your route, to look for the most efficient way to, you know, be just just know the city the best. Okay, so okay, so that that helps a lot more than you because for you it's just not like that's what you did. So that was like made it made a yeah, lot. Yeah, and of it's s- also, I mean, it's even like not even necessarily a race. A lot of times they're points based or. You know, there's another another way to measure something, and it becomes that, and not just who is the first person to finish. Though it's often that, because that's a really easy way to 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 measure things. Okay, so you go to Boston and you and you end up winning, which is probably not normal for someone coming from New York City to Boston to like win. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, th- I don't mean this like. Sorry, this was I. Um, that was the, the Pony Up race, which was a uh, just a cool format that Jacob came up with. I went to Boston for a lot of races. Okay. Um, I mean, that was, you know, when jo- when Jacob was really in his prime, he was he. There was a lot of events happening in in Boston, and there was a lot of reason to go to Boston. It was it was really cool. There's a new crew in Boston, and with a bunch of OGs in it, actually. Um, so, we were supposed to be hosting the NAC at some point when COVID cooperates. So we'll be back up there. Um, but um, I just want to talk about this one format that he oh, had. Oh, please it do. The Pony Up. So this was actually a gambling race, straight up. And it cost $5 to enter the race, okay? With that $5, you got basically a token that you could place on essentially like a bingo board or, or um, um uh, you know, like when they, what they do for football, um, but just basically a grid of all of the the people participating. And so, you know, if you if you if you believed in yourself, you place the bet on yourself, right? Um, if you thought that you were just gonna you were doing it, but you thought maybe someone else would win, you'd put that on them, okay? And then um, and then you could buy in more. You could buy more tokens if you wanted. There was no limit. Could non-racers and, buy tokens as well or no? And yes, they could. Okay. Yes, they could. So um, basically, you know, we just wound up with a betting pool of a bunch of people that, you know, a bunch of people bet on some locals and some and uh, some other people bet on me. And then um, I didn't bet on myself. I remember I bet on a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, and then I, and then I won. And then it, it was it was cool because a bunch of people were like, "Yo, you made me a lot of money," and I'm like, "Yeah, that's awesome." <laughs> so then the then the purse was split, you know. That's awesome. It was a really good gambling racing format. It was it was a pretty brilliant one that I think should see some more time out there. And well, that's all thanks to Jacob. And it seems so cool because you like like you said you're like I didn't even bet on myself. Like you're going in this to win it clearly. And you're like, I didn't, I wouldn't waste $5 on me. Like I'm going to get smoked by one my friend. I, I think, I think I had an arrangement with a friend where we bet on each other. Oh, well that, like that, that blows the story then. Did you know you were going to beat him? Um, yeah, I mean, no, <laughs> I'm used to, <laughs> it's a crapshoot in Boston, right? Especially back then that was before smartphones. And this and is, then a- I was. I was really lucky. So this must have been in 2005. So in 2004, I spent a lot of time in Boston actually working on a political campaign. And so I, a part of that race turned out to be in, in a part of Boston that I had just walked around a whole lot of. So you knew it. You had the unfair advantage, even though you didn't. You, but you yeah, were the outsider, it, non-local, who knew your way around. It, it worked out, yeah. Yeah, and this is all fixed gear, or you can be on single speed too. You can be on anything usually. Why do people fix gear? I know that's a really general question, but like, I don't. I own a fixed. Gear. Yeah, I owned one for because of you. You were like uh-huh. literally like uh-huh. I'll geek out, but like you were the reason. You made it look so cool, and I'm sure all of your friends. But like, you were the guy. You were in the spotlight, whether you wanted to be or not. Uh, there was a time that. And I we talked about this for a second prior to recording that like I worked for Red Bull for I don't know five to eight years and those were like your extremely hot five to eight years when like you were a Red Bull athlete you were an Oakley athlete 
for and they like and we're going to talk about this so they like made events or you helped create the events with them but like they were almost curated for you at the time which was blew my mind but i live in buffalo new york and grew up in buffalo and it's a very flat city so fixed gear kind of makes sense like and like you're a machine so you probably don't care about hills but like i do because i am not a machine so I was like, oh, this makes sense. I'll get one. And I like got it. And I was like, I'm running fixed. I'm not running any brakes. And like, I got it. I picked up on it. I can ride one well. I can like control myself at speed. And then we took a trip to New York City and I brought my fixed gear. And I was like, I I never wanted to like walk into a store more like a bike store more in my life and like buy brakes and flip my hub because it's so like Buffalo's easy. Like it's. There's nothing there's no i mean there's traffic but like not new york city traffic and not so yeah i have owned a fixed gear to end my ramen bowl and rant and like praising of you but yeah. i still understand the why like maybe it just never clicked but like it might have never clicked i mean i will say like i'm the same way with running maybe where people talk about a runner's high you know and how that people just go nuts for running or yoga it's the same thing yoga is a giant multi-billion dollar industry and i'm i i don't get into it you know what i mean yeah but definitely like riding bikes you know really like almost any kind of bike but also very much especially fixed gears there is sort of that magical connection there is like that it it it, it hits me on another level than just than just like oh i'm doing exercise um and so i imagine that's what people feel when they're just really thrilling to running or yoga or, or whatever is their like passionate sport. So with fixed gears, um, there is, there is like a level of control you have on the bike that you cannot get from anything else. Any, any, any input is instantaneous. There's no, you know, there's no waiting for the, the, the paws of the free will to catch up. There's no, you know, it's, 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 it's a hundred percent, you know, there's no like, Oh, well I have this type of brake on instead of this other type of brake. Yeah. It's literally a direct, it's crazy. It's for anyone who's never ridden it. Like it's just a direct drivetrain to your wheel and your legs. Like you're connected. You're 100% part of that machine at that point. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that really, you, you, you do need to like really commit and you tap into that and then it's, and then why would you not want to be there if you've done, if you've made that commitment? Um, yeah, I, I, there's, there's nothing really, I actually started riding my old, my old Brooklyn, like my first fix, you know, the orange one that everyone knows. Yep. I did, I did kind of like dust it off and inflate the tires and was, and was riding it kind of recently. How did it feel? Um, and that is, that is such like a perfect bike that it really does bring it all back. And it's just like, you know, whatever I'm rolling into on that, I know exactly the move to make on it, that it's going to do exactly what I want. Um, it's It really comes down to balance. Like skidding is only balance. It's nothing to do with strength. It's only balance, right? And so any sort of, any any endeavor that is primarily governed by balance, when you're attuned to that balance, it's it's perfection. You know, it's grace and it's, 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 it's amazing. And that's what, that's what it is. That's why, that's what's so good about it. It's everyone who, who loves a fixie, they nailed that balance and they're just, they're just doing that all day long. Let's talk Red Bull for a second. Did they approach you? Did you approach them? How did that come to life? And I don't know if there's contractual stuff you can't talk about. Just skip it if you can't talk about stuff, but how did that come to life? Like, where do they find you? Who, who found you? Oh, wow. Um, I wonder, I hope I can remember everyone's name and, and do right by them. Um, mm. Like, did you think, and you can think while I'm talking, but did you think like it was ever going to be, no one gets on their bicycle and like goes to fun races with their friends to like, think it's become a, come a, like a career for a while for you. Cause it really did unless i'm wrong but like i remember outside magazine i think it was outside magazine it was like from courier to career and i thought that was like such a great but like i don't think you saw that coming no one gets on a bicycle a fixed gear for sure and is like i'm gonna get signed by red bull and do this well i didn't 
I think maybe afterwards that might have been some some thoughts, but yeah, um, I I, re, I think I remember hearing that they were kind of sniffing around. Um, Seth Roscoe definitely was, I think, a, a huge part of why they of the introduction and and just making sure that steering them to me, um, and. And then also, I, I was fortunate that like my results could speak for themselves. That was that was, um, you know, that's necessary, and that was especially necessary in like 2007 or 2008, whenever it was. Yeah, to continue to like be on the program, right? Like everyone wants to get who's hot, but then to stay on it is a whole other story, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I was just I was just fortunate. The New York office back then was. You know, as you know, there it, it was full of good, really great people. Like, I mean, Jeff Regis and Wendy Herm are are totally. I mean, they're they're, they're definitely the reasons that I was on Red Bull, a hundred percent. Yeah, and it was cool to see them take. I mean, they took a risk on you at that time for that brand to sign yeah. someone like you were probably like a micro influencer to them. Like you yeah. weren't like the the superstar but then they created what was the name of it was like the mini mini drum mini drum that actually didn't come from new york that came out of florida i mean the whole thing is you know how it works people like pitch ideas and some of them work and some of them don't go anywhere and sometimes you pitch something and by the time you pitch it five times then it's finally it's picked up um and that actually came that came out of florida it came um it didn't come from new york the mini drum uh, but that that was such a cool event. The first time we did it in New York, we did it in this church in Bushwick. And it had this, it was the perfect spot. It had this mezzanine. So, you know, like you could, everyone could be up above. You like looked over it. it. Yeah. It was the best. It was the best. Harry Schwartzman, he, he met the guys that were running the church as like an event space. And he's like, hey, I found it. I, I know where you're going to do the, the mini drone. You got to make sure this happens. And so then we made sure it happened. How involved were you with that event? Like with uh, the series? Because it was a full series, right? Yeah, I wasn't really. You know, like they would, you know how it is. They There's, you have like uh, activation, contractual act- activation requirements. So it'd be like, they'd be like, hey, we want to fly you to Mexico for a mini drum. And I'd be like, okay, great. You know, like I, I really didn't say no to anything. But, um, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I never said no to anything about it, but I also, you know, I didn't build any of the any of the series or any of any of the parts of it like that. Okay, I always thought you. I mean, I just assumed, I guess, that you were like it was your idea because to me it was like that event was built for you and to like obviously help showcase you and their athlete. So it was cool. Uh, to... That's that's super kind, but you know, Addison really like crushes the mini drone. Right, but that is his event yeah how do, i don't even know how you would ride that was there any like was there was the track always the same or was it always different it was always different because it usually just be built on site it was always built on site and so it's there's like a whole so many factors there's the actual build team that's doing it you know there's the the venue that they found that maybe i mean they it's not like they all had the same floor plan floor plan so that's all different I'm just trying. I could. There's no way. There's no way I could ride that. How long did that last? That series was it a year, two years? It was probably like three to five years. Yeah. You know, I don't. Yeah. Somewhere. I mean, we're not. We're not holding you to anything. But like, just an idea of how long. Yeah. Where did your idea to Everest, the Williamsburg Bridge, come from? Williamsburg well, Bridge. I, yeah, I live. Um, I live at the base of it. Okay. But okay. That's still, that's not a good reason. (laughs) (laughs) I can look out the window and see it. That's still not a good reason. Um, so Everesting, I don't know when I first heard about it, but it's one of those, one of those dumb bike things that people do because it's, it's, it's it's hard and yeah, and exactly. Yeah. It's like, well, this is pointless and will be painful and will take a long time. Okay. I'm in. Um, so I wanted to, 
Everest Williamsburg for a long time. I, I, the Williamsburg Bridge. I was like, to me, it just, the, you know, there was a good, it was just the perfect fit, you know? Um, and then it's daunting. It's pretty daunting. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I think about it and then like, oh, maybe it's going to rain. I don't want to do it. Um, and then we actually were facing the L train shutdown. And so there was a lot of energy around pressuring the city to make sure that the bike routes would be as safe as possible because it was something that was going to be overlooked. Um, and if the administration kind of just went to their norm, then we would be over reliant on the, you know, all the app-based uh, rideshare vehicles. And that's just a one-to-one, -one, you know, it's one occupant usually in one car with a driver. And there's no way that we can meet, we, we would have been able to meet the subways, what the, 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 the throughput of the subway is, is, is incomparable. It's, it's massive. It's like 80% of all of the East River traffic. And to have it just be cut off completely. Yeah, a lot of it was going to go to the buses. A lot of it was going to go to the buses. A lot of it also was going to go to, um, you know, Ubers and stuff. And so we had to make sure that if this car traffic goes up, also a lot of it was going to go to bikes. We had to make sure that it was going to be safe to ride a bike over the bridge and to, to your job, all that stuff. Grand Street has been, it's still a problem, but, you know, someone that we know, Matthew Van Olen, he, he was killed on Grand Street in the bike lane, in the unprotected bike lane by a car that ran him over. Um, and this was just, all these people were going to be coming this way. So there was, it was pressure, it was to put pressure on the city to do more of, um, to put, to have better infrastructure for all the Williamsburg Bridge bike traffic. Did you organize anything? Did you fundraise for it? Did you, or were you just like woke up one morning and like, like, was it supported? I mean, I you said you live right there. So you could just like go and take a break. But like, did they, they didn't shut the bridge down for you, right? No, it was on the bike path. Yeah. But like, you just, like, but I mean, like, it was like, and it took 36 hours. But that's what I mean. Oh, that's what I know these things. But the people <laughs> listening don't. Yeah, like, okay. like, you did this with full. I mean, I know an extent of them, but like full traffic, which even bike traffic can be traffic. Yeah. there. Even in the middle of the night, there was never a moment when I was the only person on the bridge. Do you think that helped or hurt? Um, it was all pretty fine. I think there was, there was, you know, it was, there was some rain, there was some chilliness. There was also some like, there was one point of the day where it was really hot. So I remember one time I, like at one point I'm starting to like, I'm, I'm feeling just like way too hot. It's like, it's just the, it, the sun is out there. It's hot. And, um, one guy wanted to race me and I'm just like, not into it. I'm like, yo, <laughs> this is not, I didn't, you know what I mean? It was, that was, that was probably the only time I was just like, Oh no. How many uh, laps was it? I should have, I should have looked it up before coming on this. Uh, if I recall, it was 132 laps, so 264 separate crossings, and the mileage was like 400 something. And it took 36 hours. Th maybe was... a little less, maybe like 32 hours. And you did it straight? Like, I mean, I'm sure you took like breaks so and like, but the, the rules for Everesting are, are basically the only rule is that you cannot sleep. Okay. So it has to be in, in the effort. You can take breaks along the way. You can stop and, you know, eat dinner, which I did. You know, you can do all these things. You can have bathroom breaks, whatever. But you just can't go to sleep. Does this get recognized anywhere? Like, is it like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah, there's a there's a there's a club that that's formed around this and they recognize it. OK, I didn't I did not know that. They also set the rules. So. I needed to, I actually needed an, an exception to recognize my effort. So in general, the rule is that the, you need to, the, the, in, the incline has to be, can only be like one interrupted incline, right? So this is to avoid basically where somebody gets the Everstein record, but by um, using a valley to go up right. one side and then like down and we, and then partially up the next side. 
and then to the top of that and then repeat over and over and over again. And so then a lot of their climbing effort is going to actually just be aided by inertia. Um, and so it's not, you know, it's just not as, as pure or whatever. It's not, it doesn't count. Um, so, but because I was going um, over a crest instead of, and I would have to like actually slam on the brakes and stop and turn around at the base, there was no advantage like this. So it was pretty easy. For, I mean, it wasn't a problem for them to grant that to me. Um, and it also just symbolically, it's like, no, you got to cross the bridge and cross the bridge and cross the bridge and cross the bridge. And if they hadn't made the exception, then I would have had to go from, you know, the Brooklyn side to the top and then back down and then, you know, over. Yeah, it over wouldn't have been as fun. Bridge. Yeah, it would have been weird. Did you have people so, out there supporting you? Like, did, like, was I did, it? Yeah. It yeah. was like well received. So you asked, so you asked about fundraising. Um, so I, I, I worked with Transportation Alternatives. Um, it was a fundraiser for them. Um, they publicized it and I publicized it and they were very pleased with the amount of money they raised off of it. Um, Strava also was a partner. Um, they helped amplify it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Red Bull supported of course as well. Um, and yeah, all my friends stepped in. It was, it was really great. Uh, I think there was probably towards the end where I'd go five laps and, I could only keep going if somebody had brought me a slice of pizza that I would eat. And then I'd do another <laughs> five laps and it was just like, it was, it was the end, you know? <laughs> oh, I can't, I can't imagine. I literally cannot. Every time I watch an Everest thing or like read about it, like everything leads me to no. Like I wouldn't do that. No way. I don't have it. I would quit. I will. I'm pretty sure I will never do that again. I, that was my next question. Would you ever do it again? Not the Williamsburg, definitely not the. I wouldn't do a repeat, and I don't think I would just. I don't think I would do another Everest. I don't. I don't know. I, maybe I would. I probably would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a never say never, but. So what was someone harder? Should, someone should Everest the K Bridge, the new K Bridge. That that would be a really good Everest. We'll put it out there. Well, hopefully someone will pick it up and, ch maybe they'll challenge you, and then you have to do it. That's gonna be the worst. You're gonna rope yourself into it again. I'll, I'll support them. I'll bring them, you know, cookies or something. Pizza. <laughs> what was harder? Because you rode, okay, and correct me if I'm wrong, but again, this is my diligent research. You rode the Dirty Dozen in Pittsburgh on a fixed gear, which... That was tougher. That was th tougher. That was tougher. Can you explain what the Dirty Dozen is for people who don't know? Okay. Um, the Dirty Dozen, uh, it's a it's a race that, that was started and is still run and, and led and... and championed by Danny Chu. Um, but it's the 13 steepest hills in Pittsburgh, essentially. And it's also a, a, a pretty cool alley cat-esque format in that it's not your typical racing format. Everybody rides as a group to the base of the hill. Uh, Danny or someone else from the amongst the organizers will blow a whistle and then the race is on. And then um, it's just points based for the people who are to the top of the hill. So I, I forget how deep it goes. It's like either 20 or 10 deep. They get points. Um, and then everyone else is just doing it to do it. Right? Um, if you put a foot down, your effort doesn't count. So you're, you, you know, you have the option to turn around and, and try and go again. Um, obviously, if you're like in the running, if you're in the points, then you're, if you put a foot down, that point won't be counted. If you're if you're doing it for the satisfaction of doing it, then it's between you and yourself, to whether you start over again or not. But most people do because it's like the only reason to do that is to, to say that you did it, right? Right. Um, so, okay, so I did it on a fixie. Um, I don't remember my ratio. Someone asked me recently because they were looking to do it too. You were the uh, first one to ever do it, right? Like it was kind of, or no, am I making false claims? Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. Cause I remember, you know, you know, Pittsburgh has a lot of bike kooks, right? Oh yeah. But I remember being like a thing that no one had done it on a fixed gear. I don't I know. If really, you... I did it really good. I think someone else has done it once before. Okay. At least. Uh, I, I don't recall actually. We won't make that claim. I thought that, but I, like I said, I don't, I remember being a thing that no one had done it yet. And they were like, 
and this was years ago, but like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe you weren't, maybe you were, I have no idea. Damn. Um, we could ask someone. Yeah. I don't know. I'll look it up later, but how did um, you place? How'd you do? So, I, well, there's, I mean, the reason I don't, uh, the reason I think you're incorrect there is that there's been a single speed division for a while. And like I said, Pittsburgh is full of bike hoops. Right. But single speed isn't fixed gear necessarily, right? Yeah, it's not. Um, the hardest part about doing it on a fixie was that I... So so the reason actually that it was harder to do that than Everstein. Everstein was just, you know, managing my body and like pacing myself and being like, oh, okay, you know, I can't eat any more food because my belly's going to explode or, you know, just like staying within my effort. Um, and then, and then also it had, had like an unlimited time window. So I just had to make sure that I didn't blow myself up and, and, and fatigue myself. It was more mental struggle probably than physical. Uh, I mean, loosely just keep doing it. But the, um, the dirty dozen you're, you're climbing with a bunch of other people with like 300 other people. And so you try to position yourself so that you're not going to get taken out by somebody who falls over in front of you or whatever. Um, you know, the, it, it takes place in the fall. There's it's sometimes it's wet. There's leaves on the ground. They're slippery. You know, there can be any, any little thing like that. And then I'd have to reset and start over and it would just, it would just totally mess things up. Right. Um, so so that was that was that was the most nerve-wracking thing because on the fixed gear, like I'm limited in how quickly I can go down a hill. We climb a hill and then we ride to the next spot. So that means we're we're always going down a hill. So everybody on the road bikes would just they'd they'd climb the hill and I'd probably climb the hill that faster than most of them. But then when we started going to the next spot, everyone would pass me. And so then I by the time we were starting the next climb, I'd be mid-pack or something like that. And having to like weave through all these people that were also doing, you know, competing in the race, but not in the, not in the single speed class and just like the open class. Um, so it was tough. <laughs> that was really <laughs> tough. Um, there were a couple of the, so there's there like the general, like all of the, all of the single speed um, climbs. I'm pretty sure I, I just swept those. Uh, maybe not. Um, but like I, I had it. Uh, and then there were some of the some of the the general classification climbs where I was also like, you know, in the top top three, top two to finish. So that was cool. Uh, How do you train for something like that? Like, are you a diehard trainer or do you just ride your bike? No, I'm just I just ride my bike. And you just naturally have. I mean, yeah. there's some natural yeah. ability in there too. Do you think it's your natural ability to suffer like physically, or like you're just born with like powerhouse legs? Both. <laughs> yeah both yeah it's it's helpful i think it's actually like more like my heart and lungs and stuff like that but yeah my legs are good too yeah you know how it is it's you kind of get a package that just works and you don't have to do that much for it um riding riding bikes messengering it's actually a lot more it's a it's a better tool for fitness than you might think you know, it's certainly also a job that can just beat you up and mess you up and wear you down and do all sorts of bad things to you. But this is actually something I was talking to Tim Johnson about back in the day when I was like, oh, I, you know, I, I work too much as a messenger. I'm like worried about like how it might affect my training. And he was like, you know, actually like messenger work is probably a really good training tool because something that's really hard to to do in training like if you're if you're going out on just a ride and you're trying to get fit pretty hard to motivate yourself to do these like these periodic bursts where you're at you know you're going flat out for a while and then riding and then flat out and then riding like that's just not something that mentally is it's it's it comes naturally to us on on bike rides right but that's often the way at least back then that's often the way that messenger work would be it'd be like okay you know, I've got my regular pickups. Oh, okay, now I've got a triple rush that's totally in the wrong spot, and I have to like bust over to there and get it, knock it out. Okay, now I can go back to cruising. Oh shit, I got another one. And so just over and over and over and over again. So that was really good. 
Um, so, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. Were you, you were working the whole, uh, through all of this, right? Like that was your, you were ideally sponsored because of your job. Like in well, a I'm loose. I'm also lazy. <laughs> you say you're also lazy? Yeah. You're not though. You can say that, but like you're a psychopath on a bicycle. So it's okay. in there. Okay. <laughs> it's in there, whether you yeah. want to admit it or not. But it's so fun to hear people who are like, I'll just shower you with compliments. You're gonna have like the best day of your life tomorrow because you're, but, but like superior athletes. And I'm like, hey, do you train? You're like, no. Like your diet, yeah, pizza. Like, give me food. Give me like and a bicycle. Did you ever run into what was like your? And this is a well, actually, before I even segue there, tell me about this Texas trip. You like oh, that was also something that was that that was that I was thinking about for a long time before I did it, just like the Williamsburg Bridge. Um, I mean, I love looking at maps, right? And looking at maps and being like, man, it'd be really cool to ride a bike there. And it was actually a, a Doonesbury cartoon that I read in the 90s. They're uh, on, I think it's, I forget if it's Matagorda or Mustang Island um, doing bird watching, like in this island in the middle of nowhere in Texas on the Gulf. And so that made me look at it on a map. And then it made me look at everything and be like, oh, yeah, Texas has these barrier islands that are that run the length of the coast of the state essentially and you know growing up in texas i was i knew about like just the beaches and you know the people drove cars on the beaches and stuff like that and then as fat bikes became a thing i i started thinking like man it'd be really cool to like do that entire ride on a fat bike on the beach and then I started thinking, like, it'd be even cooler if you could just go between the islands with a fat bike. And then I made sure, but you with my neighbor, with my with my my sister's friend's pool, that fat bikes float. But <laughs> I'd love I to see the testing. I made sure that they would float. And then, yeah, I just I just floated with a fat bike between the, the islands. Please tell me that was like the all the prepping you did for that. We're like, Oh, this will float. I can do this. Um, I also bought some, um, some paddles, some swimming, <laughs> like, from, let me grab them. I'll show them to you. Like some fins. Yeah. I talked to a really nice lady on the phone. This is See, my these favorite. Are, these aren't, these aren't normal. Um, swim fins, right? Right. They look like duck feet. Yeah. So they're, they're like, I didn't want to get the really long ones because how do you put those on a bike? But I also didn't want to get swept out in like a river current or tied into the Gulf of Mexico. So I was, I was, I was just want to make supported? sure I could, I, I could kick. This had to be supported, right? Like you had a boat there to help you if you were like drowning. Um, there was, there was one time I rented a boat. And it was the longest crossing. And how how long was the trip total? Four about four hundred miles. And how what was your longest crossing? Oh, probably. Uh, I'd have to look at the map. I don't remember. I mean, ballpark. Were you swimming a mile at a time? No, 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 no. no okay. No, no. You... no, I mean, like there are like so the, I mean the port of Galveston. There's a, a ferry where there was a ferry or a bridge or something like that. I definitely took that, you know? Okay. I just um, remember you like swimming with a fat bike. And I don't, I did that. Yeah. Where there wasn't a ferry or a bridge. That's what, that's how I got across. Just for fun. Just because you like looking at maps. Well, because also there was no other way to get to these, some of these islands, which is, so it's really, I mean, I, I, I really would recommend that anybody do that trip. It was magical. You're going to have to post your again. post your your trip tick on the internet so people can replicate this. You should name it. You got to like name the ride and then people will do it. Put it on Strava and then everyone will just start doing it cuz anything on Strava is Oh yeah. What I actually I, I I fried my phone in the middle of it. There's this one slew that I forgot 
it, it just it was like, just like a little cut between two of the the islands that is very tidal and you know sometimes it's there sometimes it's not there so when i rolled up on it i was like oh i could probably just walk across that so i'm walking <laughs> across it walking across it and then i get to a really deep part and suddenly like i just drop down but you and- weren't you didn't have like a crew with you like this is just you or you and a friend or for the, the first day, a friend of mine rode with me. Um, there was a film crew with me on the second day. And then it was just me. That's amazing. Just for yeah. fun. Just to go do it. Well, not just for fun. Also to celebrate the Open Beaches Act. See, there's always a reason. There's always a reason with you. And that's why I enjoy it. Because now, this is my segue. And I knew you'd get there. You've become like an activist and maybe you weren't always an activist and maybe you don't like to call yourself an activist. No, I was or, always an activist. Or, in fact, if anything, I'm, I'm less, I'm identifying less as an activist today as I was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Cause you've always been, who was it who did the, I think it was like Casey Nasset or Nate, whatever the YouTuber who like rode into all the bike, everything that impeded the bike lanes. Yeah. That's been a problem forever. But like, you've always been, and still are you're private on Instagram, but somehow I'm in that crew. But like you are always posting about those things and like shining light on those things. And like, you know, we don't you don't want us in car lanes and we don't want to be in car lanes, but then they impede on the bike lanes. So I, how do we fix that? Like, do we just get every everybody to like get on? Because it's not just a problem where you are. Like, obviously, New York City is crazy to someone who cycles in Buffalo often. But, like, how do we get these people to actually care? There's a lot to really speak about there. But um, New York has been working on implementing congestion pricing for over a decade. We're right now it's we're actually in a a point where things need to happen um, and things are approved to happen. Um, so we're just waiting for that to happen. At the end of the day, we need to have fewer cars in the city. You know, whether we get there through congestion pricing or some other and some other means to make sure that there are fewer people choosing to just go into downtown Manhattan in a car because they can. Or because it's, you know, right now, people will wait for hours on some of the bridge crossings because they don't want to pay a $10 toll. You know, and, and, and the quality of life for everybody who's around that is it really suffers. And it's just what? It's like you're driving into Manhattan because this is going to allow you to avoid the toll and the Triborough Bridge on your way from upstate New York to Brooklyn. I mean, that's ludicrous, but that's also what's happening. And, and unfortunately, even with congestion pricing, that will continue to happen because the FDR will be exempt from the congestion pricing. So we're still going to have people that are trying to beat the RFK toll and come down the, the FDR and then come over, you know, one of the East River bridges for free as people have always been able to come over in a personal vehicle, the East River bridges for free. And it's, it's a big problem. It's, it's why we have a city that looks the way it is now instead of a city that would be, would be safer, would be healthier, would be more inviting, would have, have fewer dead people that I know in it. So how do you think we get more people on bicycles in general? And this is obviously a giant question, but like, how do we get, cause like, it's easy for someone like you to be like, ride a bike and easy for someone like me to say, ride a bike. Like I'm going on a very short, very, very short, but I'm going on a bike tour with my friends Friday, Saturday, Sunday this week. Like that's what we do for fun. That's something like you flew to Texas with a fat bike and swam with it for fun. How do we get, the general population to not only look at it for a tool for fun, but also reliable, viable, cheap transportation. I mean, that's the most important use of it is when people are using a bike for a practical reason. That's, that's really, that's why, that's why I do anything on a bike is so that people will choose to do that. Um, You talk to people that don't ride or don't ride a lot. And the main reason that people don't do that is because of safety, safety concerns. 
So as long as we have unsafe cities where, it's, where people don't feel safe riding a bike, we're not going to get the type of ridership that we need. That, you know, some places in Europe or even in California are able to like, get there. Um, or, you know, they're, they're approaching that. So that, I'd say that's number one is safety. And then after that, there's, I think there's a more necessary reconfiguration of some of the aspects of our housing and our, our job sites. You know, if, if you're concerned about being sweaty at work, if you don't have a place to park your heavy electric bike at home overnight, these are all things that are preventing people from, from, from riding. Um, there, are, there are solutions there. And we just need that. That's really just going to come from pressure from people. And then it, there should also be government incentives to do that. So the e-bike parking, uh, right now, if you have a car, you can park it on the, on the, on the street, usually for free. And it's pretty secure. You don't need to really worry about it that much. But if you have an e-bike, you can't park it on the street. And, you know, theft is probably going to be more of a problem for you than it is for someone with a car. So that's, that's not right. You know, that's not something that, that's not going to lead to the world that we want to see. And there are ways to correct that. And one is just having more bike parking around. So like, Parking garages for cars, they didn't used to have to accept bikes, but it's actually city law that they have to accept bikes now. So it's, it's things like that. It's little systemic changes like that that get us to a point where people can choose to use a bike and, and, and use it in a way that makes sense for them. But the number one thing is safety. If people don't feel safe, if they feel like, you know, if, if, if they feel like the infrastructure is inadequate, um, if they feel that drivers are going to hurt them and get away with it, people aren't going to ride bikes. So do you think it's start? And again, I'm like probing because I think you deal with it more often than most people, but like, do you think it starts with like government, local government officials or like just people like you and me out there, like educating our greater group of friends? Cause our core friends know, right? Like we're, we're in this world of cycling and I don't consider myself a cyclist, but I do ride my bicycle. Um, but like our friends know. So like, I don't know. I just, I'm so, and it's just intimidating. It's like skiing. It's like all these sports that I love. It, they're so intimidating. Like you ride your bicycle and like you start in your driveway as a kid, maybe. And then you hit the street and the street's very scary. And how do we get, and there's no answer, but, I don't know. Well, there, there are answers. You know, we need legislation to, to curb vehicle size and vehicle speed. So, you know, there's a there's this giant, giant loophole that now we have all these SUVs, all these pickup trucks that people just treat like a personal vehicle. You know, it's not like a work vehicle. It's not a sport utility vehicle that's used for off-roading. No, it's just a loophole that exists where they're exempt from emissions and stuff like that. And so, and, 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 and size and weight limitations and people have these huge cars and trucks. It's, I mean, it's like people, the car manufacturers don't even sell cars anymore. They're selling trucks and SUVs because it's the, this giant loophole that is leading to less safe cities. And all of the, um, all of the hybrids, all of that energy efficiency that we've that we've got, you know, electric cars, it's going to be the same thing. They're just using that to make something that's even bigger now have, you know, like a hybrid pickup truck is, is insanely large. And it's got maybe the, the fuel, mi the, the gas mileage of a pickup truck that was half the weight, but from 20 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. It's it's just so much like I don't think of it like that. And I love that. And like I drive a big stupid van around and like I spend 80 percent of my nights in this van. So I like to think that like I'm an asterisk on that. Like I kind of use it as a tool like I sleep in it. You're looking at it like this is my van. But like, oh, wow. yeah, like I'm in like I'm literally in my van. But oh my, I'm such a consumer of things. And it's and it's. You know, we want these big trucks and these big and then like you go to Europe and I spent four months in Europe years ago. But 
they they have like these little fish fuel efficient cars and like they carpool and we live in such this the United States of America where like we even when we go mountain biking four of us drive from different places separately with and you're like ah, like but what do you like uh, yeah yeah it's it's the way it is but it's nice to have this conversation and maybe next time I go to Trailhead I'll think twice and maybe I'll pick up my friend or like and that's those little things matter and those little things keep instead of having five cars on the road maybe we have one and there's five people in that car so it's i mean a lot of it is consumer choices but it's also consumer choices that have been aided and abetted by the system that our government and the corporations that that we live with have built around that so the automobile industry they love that we're 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 consuming this way you know it's they they're encouraging this right the only reason they're going to change course is either from government pressure or consumer pressure uh consumer pressure would would be something that would happen from say like gas prices going way up and everyone being like ah, i i can't really i don't want to have i don't want my gas mileage to be as crappy as it is anymore but then but then we're, we're dealing with technology where there's you know hybrid and you know all the, all the different systems that make the vehicle slightly more fuel efficient but at the end of the day you know you have you drive a 6,000 pound vehicle into a city and you're, you know, you're using a road that also has hundreds of, of people that are just people in it. You know, it's the disparity is, is, is massive. Um, the speed and the, and the weight that modern cars are able to operate at is really um, it's, it's a problem and it needs to be addressed. Um, what you were talking about with the way that most of our, most of us to get to recreation, it's very difficult to get to recreation anyway, but by driving a personal vehicle there, it's all oriented towards that. It doesn't have to be, you think, think about you, you, if you were in Europe, I'm sure you're familiar with, you've probably like gone skiing at a place where you're able to take a train there, you know? Yeah. It's totally different. And it would take such an infrastructure overhauling to do that. And just a, uh, unfortunately, like a social media overhauling. In fact, like trains aren't cool, right? And and you're in New York City, so it's a little different. I think everyone takes a train. Mo- a lot of people rely on trains for, but like a city like Buffalo, we have one train. It goes in a straight line. It doesn't get you anywhere. And a lot of people cycle in the city. And the city has done. I think they've promised over the next. I think we're five years into that plan. But over the next 10 years, they were going to put over 300 miles of bike trails in. And, like, they're crushing it. Like, if you can ever get a chance to come bike in Buffalo, you should. Because there's bike paths everywhere. And we don't have the traffic. And they're beautiful. And they're, like, it's amazing. There's a trail that I could leave Buffalo and ride to Manhattan. There's a there's now, like, a trail. And there, you hit some yeah. roadways along the way. But, like... I know. I've been hearing lots of good things about Buffalo lately. It's... It's... The city's rad. I do love it. But we have this really great cycling infrastructure, and it's getting better. But they are... You know, the city's, like, trying to be cool and, like, hip and, like, go bike Buffalo. But, like, it's such bad branding that people are like, no, nah, I'm going to... I'm still going to drive my car, and I'm still... So, it's like, we it needs to be a cultural shift, not a social media shift, a, a cultural shift that... It's okay to arrive, like you said, like sweaty at work, like because it's not really cultural. Except, why are you sweating? Well, I rode my bicycle here. Well, it's like, well, it's ninety. Drive your car tomorrow. Like, it's not. Yeah. It's not culturally accepted to show up sweaty at work, or like. So the, when you said you mentioned government incentives for cycling or skateboarding or any other, you know, organic, healthy safe i mean our safe is a loose term but or just don't you don't even have to think about it as incentives just realize that there there are so many incentives that are pushing everyone towards driving cars right now and either just eliminating those or or tipping the needle slightly back the other way so like any new development most of the time like depending on the size of the development if it's if it's at all like kind of at, at, at any sort of scale they have a parking minimum they might be on top of a subway station, but they have a parking minimum. But there's no like, oh, let's have showers for people that are that are 
commuting on by bike tour. There's no requirement for that. That's something that maybe they'll pursue for like lead status or something like that. Um, but you know, it's like, well, we made this giant parking garage because we had to. Right. And that, that sucked up all the budget that we might've put into something like a shower. Yeah. A shower or like somewhere safe to put your e-bike. Like that's again, it's, it's, a New York, more of a New York city problem when you're talking to me. Cause like we have those problems, but not as drastic. Cause we're not overpopulated like New York city, but it's, it's all true. And it's all really cool for you to shine light on it because it's something that me even being in the sport doesn't recognize. So it's, it's just a thought provoking conversation. And for that, I thank you. Oh yeah. Right on. <laughs> Uh, hey, I'm cu- I'm curious about y'all's uh, mayoral race. That's really exciting. What's going on there? It's crazy. So we just so uh, we just have like a socialist mayor win. Well, she didn't win. She won the primary, uh, and it's and, fun- now, and now y'all now the incumbent is going to challenge her, right? Yeah, and like it's funny because our mayor Byron Brown, he's been mayor for ever. Like I don't know how, but like forever. But he didn't really campaign because if he would have campaigned it would have shed it would have made it a race so he just didn't say anything he was like very silent about it and then he lost uh so it'll be it's going to be an interesting uh because now he's doing he's coming in as a write-in or something and their chance it's crazy it's but it's it's a writing campaign i think now is what he's gonna do so we'll see but i think he's screwed i do think he's screwed um and i think change is good i don't know i should know more about her but i don't uh but i'm just excited for change and i'm excited for someone who seems to care i don't know i don't know i hope i really do and it's real it's fun it's cool um it's exciting yeah. And Buffalo is like, I, I'll die in Buffalo. I love Buffalo. It's such a rad city. We're on the water. Again, our biking infrastructure is like beautiful and just getting better and better and better. Uh, I'm actually going, like I said, I'm going on a small bike packing trip this weekend. Like six dudes. We're going, we're doing 150 miles in three days, which is in New York. Yeah. In New York, but we're, we can leave. We're all going to leave from Buffalo, meet on the bike path. And go out to like Rochester and back. Oh hell yeah! We're all busy, so we don't have time to do anything. Last year we did Pittsburgh to DC and back, which is yeah. the Gap Trail. If you've never done it or don't know about it, you do not touch a road for three hundred and something miles. Which is that is that is probably the ride I I haven't done that I most want to do. You could do it in a day because you're a machine. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, but like it is. 800 foot of gain over 330 miles or something like it, but it's a riot. And like, if you want to go with your friends who aren't necessarily a machine or like we load up our bikes with 60 pounds of gear and we, there's, it's the greatest bike trail I've ever been on my entire life. As far as like every 10 miles, there's an iodine treated well. So you have water the whole way. There's primitive campsites it's along the Potomac the entire way. So every night you swim. So you get like a fresh reset, get all salt. Off. It's, it's like intro to bike packing and it's, <laughs> it couldn't be easier and more fun and beautiful. And there's, we did it during COVID last year. So we were fully self-contained like, Oh, nice. Cause we felt bad on doing it in general yeah. with that guilt. But it was also like, we brought all our own food. We didn't shop. We didn't stop. We did one restock at REI. We had everything delivered to REI in DC, like drop shipped. We picked it up and then we kept going. So we had like, that was our mini expo. But other than that, like fully off. Cause when in our lives are we going to have eight days that six friends can just go on a bike trip? Like doesn't happen anymore. So that trail is fun, but it's so easy. It's such a gift. It's like, it's an old railroad, so it's just smooth and flat, and some of it's paved. It. It's amazing. But, uh, Austin, anything else you want to talk about? Uh, you're private on Instagram, so you probably don't want people to follow you there. Uh, everyone look up Austin Horse because he doesn't like to pretend like he's this big guru, but he's literally 
the king of fixed gear. I'm sure there's greater heroes out there. I'm sorry, but you were my inspiration forever wanting to ride a fixed gear. You put it on the map. You made people realize that like this could be a career and you could make money and you could do really rad things and travel the world by riding a fixed gear bicycle. So thank you so much. Uh, anywhere that people can follow you, look at what you do, or they can just listen to this and that's all they get. Um, well, I guess my Twitter is not private, so I'm, I'm Austin Horse on like all my things. And I guess the Twitter is the only one that is a good one to follow that I'm active on. Okay. Mostly I'm just sort of like shouting into an echo chamber of people who followed me 10 years ago on Twitter and then stopped using it. It seems like so <laughs> Twitter's back. <laughs> Twitter is back and popular again. So Everyone know, go follow. Yeah. Everyone go follow Austin on Twitter. Uh, he's a super activist, although he's saying he's not anymore. Donate to any campaigns he's doing, which he pretends like he's not doing anymore. But he's out there. Uh, and thank you so much for taking the time to have a conversation. What I, what I mean about the activism just is that you know it was something that really did define me in, in my community in a lot of ways. And from like two thousand to like the Iraq war onwards. And last year, um, it was just so phenomenal to see the outpouring of people into the streets and, and the way that it became this thing that was that I could no longer even really consider as an identity because it was just like normal all of a sudden. It's just like, oh, yeah, I'm it. it that I am really heartened to, by by everyone, the, the, the extent of, of engagement that I really see amongst my community. Yeah. It's refreshing it, to see people care again. And that's sad to say, but 10, 15 years ago, people didn't care. It wasn't their problem. And now it's extremely refreshing to see people care, but I love yeah. how you tone it like that. How you say it like that. Like now it's just normal. It's become normal in our communities to care. So you're not an activist anymore. You're just a, functioning member of a community who cares and gives a shit about what happens to the people in the community and why they happen. That's such a great way to put it, Adam. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's yeah. amazing, but I'll let you go. It's 10 o'clock on a Wednesday. So thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, uh, this is my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out to me, Adam. Yeah, this is amazing. Thank you so much. Cool. Take care. That was episode 21 of The Pursuit on the Out of Bounds Network. I am Mr. Adam X. That was at Austin Horse. Follow him on Twitter. Look him up. Google him. He's too shy to say how rad he is, but he's super rad. He reminds us that riding bikes is important. It's important for your health. It's important for the environment. It's important for our city's growth. So take that. Do what you will with it. Scroll down, leave a review, five-star reviews are rad. Follow at Mr. Adam X, follow at Out of Podcast. Listen to Jabber's show. Listen to the new show called Big Stick Energy, which is coming out next week, maybe? I don't know. Pay attention, have fun, live your life, hug your friends, hug your family, call an old friend, call an old pal, ride your bike, go outside, rollerblade, skateboard. Do hacky sack, do a kickflip, live your life, friends. Peace.